0: You see, it's like before and during the civil rights era, where African-American men weren't called by their names, but they were called boys by white men and police officers. You see, such comments were degrading and insulting. Look at the next question. It says, what is the wisdom that has been given to him? You see, in their minds, Jesus got his wisdom from somewhere, and they know this Because they grew up with him. They had the very same education that he had. And they took the same classes and were taught by the same teachers. And no one else in Nazareth possesses this kind of wisdom. So they're wondering, who gave him this wisdom? Then they say, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? See, they've either seen these mighty acts or they have heard about them, but they want to know the source of his power. And they say, isn't this the carpenter? You see, they knew Jesus. They knew his former occupation. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a student of a rabbi. But he was a common worker of his hands. In their minds, Jesus wasn't anything special. Then they go on and say, the son of Mary. For instance, this is a derogatory comment. Because in Hebrew culture, it was appropriate to refer to one as the son of their father, regardless if their father was dead or alive. Like how the apostles James and John were referred to as the sons of Zebedee. But what is disparaging is to refer to a Jew as the son of their mother. And yet this is what they did to Jesus. And they did this because they believed that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that he was conceived in sexual immorality. And you can know this, because in John chapter 8, verse 41, when the Pharisees are talking to Jesus, the Jews said, we weren't born of sexual immorality, implying that they believe Mary conceived Jesus through immorality. And not only that, they go on and say, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? You see, they knew all of Jesus' siblings, they name his brothers. You see, Jesus' family is not a family of prestige. They're not the Joneses, but they're common folk. And because the crowd knew this, they're like, who does this guy think that he is? He shouldn't be teaching with authority or have this type of wisdom or have the ability to perform these mighty acts. You see, in their minds, though they, th- they thought that Jesus wasn't qualified to be a teacher, They didn't think that he deserved to be heeded or listened to. And so it says that they were offended by him. They were put off by Jesus. Did you catch that they acknowledged his wisdom and mighty acts? But they rejected his message because they rejected him. You see, they took offense with the messenger and disbelieved the message, rendering him unqualified to be obeyed. Because they knew him. At least they thought that they knew him. You see, they knew a lot about Jesus, but they didn't know him. They didn't recognize that they grew up with the Son of God. They failed to recognize that his wisdom is from God and that his mighty acts are done because he is the Son of God, because he is the Messiah. Now, one may wonder, how did they miss it? They grew up with him. They Shouldn't they have suspected him to be the Messiah? Or did they have some sort of dirt on him? Well, friends, I would say that they didn't have any dirt on him because he is the sinless Savior. Even as we read in the scriptural assurance of pardon that Jesus is the one who is without sin. You see, they missed it because of their sin. They needed God to open their eyes. Because the reality is, left to ourselves, we will not recognize Jesus for his true identity. Similar to how in chapter 3, how his siblings thought that he was out of his mind. You see, the truth is that we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes that we may see and know and believe Jesus for who he truly is. And in this section, what we see is that it's very much possible to know the facts about Jesus... But to not know him. You see, one could know his hometown, his teachers, his family, and yet not know him. You see, Jesus, he is more than a Nazarene, he is more than a carpenter, he is more than a good teacher. He is the Son of God, he is the Christ, he is the King who brings in the kingdom of God. You see, friends, it's not enough to know about him. You must know him by faith, and to know him is to have eternal life, and to be saved, and to follow him. You see, don't just merely know facts about him. Know and believe and trust that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior. Trust this to be true, because it is. And so the question for you guys this morning is, do you know him? You see, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, do you know him? I'm just playing. Don't do that. (laughs) I know we're probably not comfortable for that just yet. But this is a good thing to discuss after service. Like, what is the difference between knowing him and merely knowing about him? Look at verse 4. It said, "Jesus, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives, and in his household. You see, Jesus, he knows that he is being rejected, and he responds to their rejection with quoting a famous proverbial statement. You see, he says that a prophet, a messenger from God, they would be rejected by people who are familiar with them. They are apt to undervalue the things that they are familiar with. You see, Jesus, he gets at the reality that familiarity can breed contempt. You see, their disdain towards Jesus was because they were accustomed to him. And this very same thing happens today. You see, some of us may have experienced the same rejection and contempt when we've tried to share the gospel with people in our own hometowns and with family members and friends. They may bring up our past or say that this is just an act. They may say that we have no right to talk to them about Jesus because of our past. They may even stop listening to us because they assume that we think we're better than them or that we are looking down on them. You see, they may not want to hear it. And for those of us who have experienced this type of rejection, we know how discouraging it is, how disheartening it is. Friends, take comfort that the Lord Jesus knows that he has experienced the very same rejection and that he can help and comfort us in this. You see, the reality is just as Jesus was rejected by his people, we shouldn't be surprised if we too be rejected by ours. And on the other side, the, the possibility, seeing that this is true, that this is a possibility, one could very well be rejected, it could also lead us to dread the thought of living in our own hometowns. You see, we could be, if we were to live there, we could be tempted towards silence for the sake of acceptance. Even now, some of us may fear the holidays because we're fearing rejection if we were to talk about Jesus with our families. And beloved, if that's you, I would encourage you to cast those cares on the Lord to pray, but also to share them with the members of this church, that we may pray for one another, pray for gospel opportunities, and pray for boldness, and that we would actually share the gospel. You see, we shouldn't let the possibility of rejection deter us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, because the reality is they need to hear the gospel, and also that their possible rejection will not change our status before God. You see, God has us in his hands, and there is no rejection that can pluck us out of his hands. So may we take comfort, and may we pray for gospel opportunities, and may we share as the Lord allows. And pray they will receive Christ by faith. Look at verse 5. It says, he was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Whoa, what is going on here? Like, what do you mean that it says that he is not able to do a miracle there? He is the son of God, so why is he not able to do a miracle? Is his power limited? Is he incapable of something? Which I would say no. His power is definitely not limited. Rather, what's happening here is that Jesus, he normally does mighty acts, In the presence of faith and in response to faith. If you guys remember in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus forgave the paralytic and healed that man, he did it in response to faith for it says that he saw their faith. And even in chapter 5 where it says that he healed the woman with blood hemorrhage, it was in response to her faith. You see, what's happening in this passage is that the village, these people, they have absolutely and emphatically rejected Jesus. There is no faith. And so in response to their rejection, they were prevented from witnessing mighty acts that demonstrate the nearness of God's kingdom. You see, remember that Jesus, he preaches and that his miracles or his mighty acts, they authenticate his message. Well, they have rejected him. And so they've been barred from seeing the mighty acts that would authenticate his message. Look at verse 6 where it says, and he was amazed at their unbelief. You see, earlier in verse 2, we saw that the crowd was astonished at Jesus. Well, here we see that Jesus, he marveled at the crowd because of their unbelief. And this is the first and only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus is amazed. And what amazed him? It was their rejection. You see, he expected a different response He was hoping that they would repent, but they didn't. And friends, what a sad scene this is, that they have rejected the Son of God, the only Savior. You see, their unbelief has barred them from receiving the greatest gift ever, salvation. And rather, their unbelief will lead to future judgment. And the other reality is, is now they know that they should have believed in Jesus. Now they know that his message was and is true. But it's too late for them. Because it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so those who persisted in this rejection, they now know that they should have believed. And they know that it's too late. But if you are not a Christian... Though it's too late for them, it is not too late for you. I would implore you to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Do not reject him and persist in unbelief, but believe that he is the Son of God who became man to save people by dying on the cross for their sins. He bore the wrath of God in the stead of sinners. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave. And all who turn from their rebellion and trust in him are saved. You see, if you get anything from this sermon, get this, that you need to trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And I would urge you, implore you to believe in him today. Do not reject him. And if you want to know more, please talk to any of the members after service see, in this section, in this scene, we've seen Jesus get rejected. And now we'll see Jesus commission the twelve. Look at verse 7. It says that he summoned the twelve and began to send them out. You see, Jesus, he called the twelve apostles. That's the twelve that this verse is referring to. You remember in chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus appointed the twelve to be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And to have authority to drive out demons. You see, in chapter 1, he has promised that he will turn them into fishers of men. And he has been training them for ministry by having them observe him. You see, they saw him preach, teach, cast out demons, and heal the sick. Well, now it's time for them to put to practice what they have learned. Just how a student studying to be a doctor enters their time of residency. You see, they train by observing doctors, watching them perform surgery after surgery. And after this intensive training, it's their turn to operate. And that's what's happening in this passage. And it says that he began to send them out in pairs. You see, Jesus, he paired them up. And what's happening here is that Jesus' ministry is about to expand and extend. And some may wonder, well, how is it about to expand? Well, it's going to expand through his apostles. They will be his representatives. His ministry will extend through them. And so he pairs them up. And why does he pair them up? He pairs them up so that what has happened can be validated because of the testimonies, because the testimonies are established on the basis of two witnesses. But it could also be for them to encourage one another, to share in the excitement of what they see God do, and also to comfort and strengthen one another when rejected. Because the reality is, ministry can be difficult, which is why it's good for one to not do it alone. Not only did he pair them up, it also says that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. You see, Jesus, he is the Son of God, and he himself has authority over demons. We have seen it multiple times in Mark's gospel. You see, when demons encounter Jesus, they fear and tremble, but they are also cast out at every encounter. And not only does Jesus have authority over them, Jesus also has authority to give this authority over demons to his apostles. See, they will cast out demons as, just as they saw Jesus do it. And the thing is, they won't do it by their power, but solely by Jesus' power. They'll do it in his name. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, he instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. Talk about traveling light. Like for real. Y'all, every time my wife and I, we about to fly out somewhere, we're praying that our suitcase is not over 50 pounds. See, the reality is we need to learn from Jesus about what it looks like to pack. You see, Jesus, he instructs the disciples, instructs the apostles to take a staff for protection and for walking and to wear a pair of sandals. Nothing else. And some one may wonder, like, man, does Jesus care about their provision? Well, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about their physical needs of food and clothing, but rather Jesus instructs them to utterly depend on God for provision. You see, they will experience God's faithfulness in tangible ways. They'll learn that God is their provider. You see, they were to devote themselves to ministry and trust God for the provision. You see, no bread, no money, no extra shirt for the night is no problem for God. His hands are not tied behind his back. He is the source of All these provisions, and he will give, and he will supply, and he will provide. Now, the thing is, we also must be clear that this instructions of only taking a staff and sandals, it is descriptive and not prescriptive. You see, it was unique for this commission. And some may wonder, like, how are you getting this? I would say, as you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that this necessarily wasn't the practice of the Apostle Paul, You see, the Apostle Paul, he was bivocational. He was an an apostle and a tent maker. He worked with his hands among the people where he did ministry. And he also received financial provision from churches who partnered with him. You see, the reality is, even today, this is not the instruction for Christians who become missionaries. It's good to take clothes and food and money. The thing is that we should not hope in them. You see, our hope should be in the Lord, and we should trust him for our provision. Well, next we'll see, then in the next verse we'll see that God actually provides for the apostles through the means of people. And God actually does this today as churches partner financially with pastors and missionaries in gospel ministry. And so, saints, a good application question for us is what would it look like for us to be some of God's instruments of provision for missionaries? You see, as a church, we should care about the gospel going forth beyond Midtown. We want people to hear the gospel and be saved. And as you think about this, one way that we can labor to this end is by being generous partners in gospel ministry. So what can this look like for us individually? Well, our very own brother Carson Merkel and his wife Kanoa, they are preparing to go back to Dubai in a few months. What a great opportunity we have to partner with our own. I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider partnering with them through financial giving as they go and serve the Lord in Dubai. Beloved, get time with them and learn ways that you can partner with them. But now we see that Jesus instructs the apostles on how to respond when they are received and when they are rejected. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so in verse 10, we see Jesus' instruction on how to respond when they are received. He says, when you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. You see, by God's grace, people will receive the apostles and heed their message. The question is, how should they respond? Well, they should respond with gratitude for people's hospitality. They were to remain in that house and eat what they received the entire time until they dip out of that town. You see, they shouldn't house-hop for comfort if they were offered a better spot, because this would be offensive. But rather, they should praise God that he's providing for them, that they are being received, and that people are believing their message. And the same goes for us. But then also, on the flip side, we should also consider being the hospitable ones, the ones who are receiving people into our homes to welcome them and encourage them and refresh them in Christ. You see, we should see our homes as a place of ministry. As Rosaria Butterfield says, the gospel comes with a house key. You see, not only does Jesus instruct them on how they to respond if they are received, he also instructs them on how they are to respond if they're rejected. Look at verse 11. It says, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You see, as sad sad as it is, not everyone will receive the apostles and their message. You see, they too will experience rejection just as Jesus did. You see, if they rejected Jesus, then they'll too reject his followers. But one thing I was thinking about As I was studying this is, man, how kind of the Lord to send them out after they witnessed Jesus' rejection. You see, if all they ever seen was Jesus be received, it could be tempting for them to be in despair if they experienced rejection. You see, they could have been tempted to believe that they did something wrong. But now they know that people will reject them and they will reject the gospel. And Jesus goes on to explain how they should respond. He says, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You see, they weren't to revile the people. They weren't to slander them. They weren't to pray for their destruction. But they were to shake the dust off their feet. This was a cultural practice. You see, Jews, they wore sandals. And as they traveled these dirt roads, dust would get on their feet. And they remove it from their feet when they traveled outside of Israel. You see, one was say, said this, that by this action they disassociated themselves from the pollution of those lands and their ultimate judgment. You see, shaking the dust off their feet would serve as a warning to these people that they had fulfilled their duties in pre- preaching the gospel and that those who rejected them would have to answer to God. Now, one may wonder... Are we to do the same today in Memphis if we're rejected? To which I would say, I don't think we should. And I say this for a few reasons. One, we're not apostles. And we're not on missionary journeys. But rather, we live in Memphis. You see, they were on a temporary missionary journey, but this is our home. And if people hear the gospel and they reject us, I don't necessarily know if we should dust off our shoes, because we ain't leaving the town. You know, we're staying here. And we didn't preach to the whole city. We shared the gospel with a person. But how should we respond? I would say that we should weep. We should have compassion for their souls. We should pray for their repentance. We should pray that the Lord would soften their heart and save them by the grace of God. We should love and serve them. We should also pray that the Lord would give more opportunities for us to do ministry to them that the Lord will open up doors for another gospel conversation and that they would repent and believe well, what we shouldn't do is try to force the gospel down their throat you see Jesus he didn't force himself upon he didn't force himself upon people when he was rejected so nor should we try to force the gospel down somebody's throat if they reject us look at verses 12 and 13 It says, so they went out and preached that people should repent They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. You see, they received their orders, and they obeyed. They did three things. Did you catch it? They preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, and they anointed many sick people and healed them. First, they preached. You see, they preached that people must repent because the kingdom of God is near. This message is a humbling one because it confronts us in our sin and declares that we deserve judgment. But it's also a message of mercy. You see, people should repent because we've sinned against God and deserve judgment, but God is merciful and gracious. He forgives the one who repents and trusts in Jesus. And how can he do this? It's because Jesus atoned for sins by dying on the cross and resurrected from the grave. His wrath is satisfied for all who turn from their sin and trust in him. You see, the penitent are forgiven, and only the penitent are forgiven. Just as only the repentant are saved, and only the repentant have eternal life. You see, they were to preach the very same message that Jesus preached. But not only were they to preach, it says that they, were to, they drove out many demons. You see, this This act right here, this mighty act, it authenticated their message. It testified that the kingdom of God really has come near. And they cast out demons by Jesus' authority. And not only that, but they also healed the sick. They anointed the sick with oil for medicinal purposes, and they healed them, which also authenticated their message. You see, what we see here is the fruit of discipleship. They did exactly what they saw Jesus do. You see, Jesus' ministry, it is expanding and extending through his apostles. You see, their ministry was to be one of proclamation and demonstration. It was word and deed. You see, their ministry wasn't one of innovation, but rather it was one of imitation. You see, they didn't reinvent the will, but they did what Jesus did— you see, they did this in a temporary, on this temporary commission, but they also did it after Jesus gave them the Great Commission. And church, it is the same for us today. You see, we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. Jesus' ministry and methodology cannot be improved upon. But who are, And who are we to think that we know better than the Son of God? But see, we are to proclaim the gospel, and our good deeds, our good works, should authenticate our message. You see, our ministry should be one of word and deed. We should faithfully and clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling everyone to repent and trust in him. But there should also be good works that authenticate our message. Now, the reality is we're not apostles. We don't have this authority to cast out demons. But there should be works that validate our message. And one may wonder, well, what are some of those works that should be there to validate our message? Well, I would say, beloved, first that we should love one another as Christ has loved us. You see, our love for one another should testify to the world that we follow Jesus. And not only that, but we should also live in unity. You see, as we walk in unity as a church amidst diversity, it serves as a witness to the world that the Father has sent the Son. And we should also do good works— Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 and 10 says that we should do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Some of those good works can be that we should care for widows and orphans and keep ourselves unstained from the world. You see, beloved, our mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we preach the gospel, there should be some works that we do that authenticate our message, that testifies to the truth. This is our mission. You see, Jesus Christ, He is our Lord. And the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, it's our mission. This mission has not changed; it's been the same mission since the birth of the church. It started with the apostles as they laid the foundation, and now it continues as we, the church, we're to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And our good, our good deeds should validate our message. You see, when Christ saves us, He has given us this ministry of reconciliation. He has given us the message of reconciliation. Where we are to implore people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. God is making his appeal through us that we would implore them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And so, saints, may we preach the gospel. May we be faithful to this mission. And may we not fear rejection. You see, at your jobs, preach the gospel. In your home with your children, preach the gospel. With your family members, preach the gospel. With your neighbors, preach the gospel. Beloved, may we be faithful in proclaiming the gospel until our dying day, or until Christ returns, whichever one comes first. But may we be faithful, seeing that the gospel advances through the church. So may we preach the gospel. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, we thank you that in your grace and in your love, God, we can repent and trust in Jesus. We thank you for your gospel, that it is a message of mercy, a message of salvation, a message of deliverance, that we are saved when we believe in him. And God, not only that, but you've called us to proclaim that very same message You are sending us out to faithfully preach. Oh Lord, we pray that we will be emboldened by your grace to the power of your Holy Spirit. And that we would faithfully preach the gospel. God, we pray that as the apostles were received and as we've seen many people repent and believe, we pray that more would. God, that those who would hear our message would respond with repentance and faith for salvation. Lord, help us to be faithful in this until our dying day. And this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.